Welcome to an exegetical study of biblical scripture. This scripture is God's speech, God's story, written through the hands of men by his spirit, and it's all about God's glory. My name is Bryce Ferguson. Join me now as we go into the word. This is Genesis. Brothers and sisters and seekers of the Lord, I greet you today in the name of our wonderful Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, reveal yourself to your people as we seek you. Lord, give us a desire to seek you above all else, to read your law and to champion your law above all else. We know, God, that you are good and that you have goodness for your people. This is in the plan. This is in your heart. You want to be in a relationship with us. That's why you created us. And a relationship is a two-way relationship. God, so may your people abandon the things of this world which seek to drive a wedge between us and you. God, may our hearts let go of the things of this world and let go of temptations which seek to pull us away from you, which seek to turn us around, to lead us away. And God, stir our hearts so that we desire you each day, every single day, greater, more, more, to know you, to be in relationship with you, to love you, to worship you, to champion you more. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Brothers and sisters, if you have your Bibles, please open to Genesis chapter 3. Now, we started in Genesis chapter 3 last week with the first five verses and the first encounter, the serpent with Eve. And today we're going to continue in verse 6. But I want to go back to verse 1 and start there because this is all one event. This is all one timeline. So let's start in chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Continuing now in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So Adam was right there with Eve. 
Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And Adam responded, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let's stop real quick and pray again. Lord God, please work in us through the Holy Spirit to change us. That as we struggle with sin, that we would not desire sin. That we would see you in authority, your authority over us, and that daily, God, daily that would change us to defeat the desires for the things of this world, to defeat the desires of selfishness, the desires for pride, which is truly the root of so many evils, of all evil. It comes back to pride. Holy Spirit, please sanctify us so that we might be more like Christ more like the image of God and after the likeness of God, which is how we were created. Pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Who are you listening to? I feel like this is a question that God asks of us every day multiple times a day. It's not something probably that you hear in your mind from God, feel in your soul from God, or specifically read in his word directly from God, but God wants to know who are you listening to. And our answer to that question back to God is paramount for the stability of our relationship with God and for his blessing in that relationship. We spoke last week about how the serpent in chapter 3, 1 through 5, really is Satan, the evil one, and how Satan lied every time he spoke to Eve in those verses. And if you count it, that's three times. He deceptively and very intentionally misquoted God's commandment in order to tempt her into rebelling against God. And I guess he saw Adam there, and so he tempted him into rebelling against God because Satan is adamantly against God. He's completely opposed to God. They're 
Polar opposites are on opposite ends of the spectrum. God is fully holy, and Satan is fully evil. This is who Satan is, and this is what he's about. This is what he does. He's a deceiver. That's what his name means. He's evil. He's a deceiver. As we said before, John 10.10, Satan is a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. This is who Satan is. This is what Satan is about. And what we read here in chapter 3, you've heard it said, this is the beginning of sin. This is the beginning of destruction in the world. This is the beginning of when things completely go off the rails and fall apart on earth. And in the story of mankind, and that's absolutely true. And this is a multifaceted, monumental act of temptation. And let's go through it. This temptation that's offered on the table by the evil one. This temptation from Satan to Eve and to Adam, to man and to woman. Is multifaceted. And the first is a temptation to distrust God. They're also tempted to think God did not have their best interest in his commandment about the tree. They're tempted to challenge God for status, power, and authority. They're tempted to stand apart from God, to not be under God's authority, but be their own authority. That's the epitome of pride, and that's monumental in proportion. And they're tempted to believe that God lied. This is like an act of treason with God. And they're also tempted to believe the words of someone they didn't even know. They took as fact the words of a creature who challenged what they had been told by their creator. Man and woman were in the garden. They were brought to each other. They are man and wife or husband and wife. It's even right here in chapter three. They were married. And they walked in the garden with God and they knew God as creator. And they had this very close and proximity relationship with God. And yet they're tempted to believe the words of a created creature. And in the tension of this moment, instead of choosing God, they chose to believe a snake. But God makes both himself and his command very clear. We've been over this a little bit, but let's look back. Let's look at what God had said to Adam and also to Eve once she was created. So far, from the beginning up to this point. If you've got your Bibles, then please let's go back. Genesis 1, starting at verse 26. 
And this is just before their creation, but it says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. With the exception, of course, of one particular tree. And we'll get to that in a second. Verse 30, and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to, every, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. Let's skip to chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now let's skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, a vast number of trees, folks, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now let's go back to chapter 3, starting at verse 1. But first, let me read God's command again, specifically in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but 
of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die okay now chapter 3 verse 1 now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, we know this is a lie. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. No, obviously not. We just read chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, God mentioned two trees originally that were in the middle of the garden. She zeroes in, well, she says the tree that's in the midst of the garden, that's extraneous. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. He didn't specifically said that. He said you shall not eat of it. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Yes, you will, because God said it in the commandment. Chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. So who is she listening to now? Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay, first of all, we just read this also back in Genesis 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 26. Man was made in God's image. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So the lie from the serpent is that they could be like God. Hello, they're already like God in so many ways. But they're not going to be God. And Satan was purporting that they could be God. That God was holding something back, that he wasn't good. He was bringing distrust to the surface. Here's distrust on a platter. Really, there's no reason to trust God was what the offer was to Eve. And then we get into it. In verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, so it was as though God was holding it back that the tree was actually good for food. When God had given every other tree in this incredibly massive garden, folks, there was one ginormous river that split and became four different rivers by terminology. And these went out around this garden. I don't know about you. I've never seen a garden like this, let alone an area like this in the world. And I'm sure there are certain areas kind of like this in description. But normally a river is very good size let alone four rivers that split off from one river and are still all four called rivers. This is a very large area. And God has given every green plant for food. God has given all of these trees with their fruits 
for food, except for one. Verse 6, so when the woman saw this tree, the tree, the tree in particular, the one God prohibited by command, lest you die. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, or your translation may see, may say desire, and then the ESV goes on and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. These are all adamantly opposed to God's commandment about the tree. God prohibited this tree. God prohibited the eating of this tree. So that rules out that it's good for food. This rules out that it should be a delight to the eyes. See, folks, sometimes God prohibits something that even we in our flesh desire, but God says no. Therefore, we need to feel completely differently about that, whether our eyes desire it or not. But even if our eyes desire it, God says no. Therefore, we need to change our desires. Change your desires. God says no, change your desire. You wrestle with it, because it's probably not going to be a day one to day two change of desire. You wrestle with it, with the Holy Spirit, by the grace of God, praying for the desire to change. But also you need to start desiring God more than that desire. And your desire for God will start crowding out other smaller desires for the lesser things of this world, the lesser loves, the loves over in the corner that start creeping back into your life, into your mind, into your heart. You need to change your desires. The woman was deceived to think that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she took of its fruit and she ate it. Therefore, she broke God's commandment. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. We don't know any more about his tension or if he had any conversation with the serpent. I guess not. Before he just up and ate it as well. Breaking God's commandment. And both of them knew the punishment was death. Let's look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. The only correlation in what Satan lied about, that their, eye, that their eyes would be opened, that phrase, and this verse is that their eyes were opened, yes, but not in a good way. Their eyes were not opened in a way that Satan talked about, that he was offering to them on this platter. It wasn't a good thing. Their sudden recognition of their naked bodies meant they were filled with guilt and shame. For they had always been technically naked, if you will. I mean, they were biological human bodies in form. All of us have it. We know what it looks like. We know what it is. But they didn't think that way before. They didn't think, we're naked. That's a problem. 
because there were only the two of them on Earth and they were married. So there wasn't really any reason for clothing, right? We do clothing because of propriety. We do clothing because it's outside the marriage covenant interactions with other people. That's why we have clothing. But in guilt and shame, as is often the case after sin, now they see themselves in a completely different way, and it's not a better way. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Adam and Eve heard the sound of God walking. How wondrous it must have been, folks, to have been so close to God that they could hear him walk his footsteps in the garden. And I don't think this is isolated to this moment. This post-sin, this post-rebellious moment. The relationship that they had with God up to this point was extremely personal and close by. It was geographically close. The proximity was really, 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 really close. I don't know if we have something this close in the Old Testament, let alone when Moses asked to see God's glory and God hid him with his hand in the cleft of the rock while God passed by. Moses was, a, was allowed to turn around and to see the back of God's clothing as he walked past him. This is a very close proximity. Woe. There is the Lord God. God was dwelling on earth with man. This is far and away different than anything that we have understood. Save for the time when Jesus came to earth and walked among us. And God was back. And God will come back again. And we'll have that relationship with him again, that at his second coming, this will now be with his people for always. In utter contrast to this closeness, this kind of repeats the consequence shown in verse 7 of guilt and shame. As is often the case after sinning, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Scripture doesn't say here that they hid themselves from God, and that would have been enough. But they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. And what we see at the end of chapter 3, and we'll get to that in a few weeks, God is going to exile Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. God is going to change the nature of their relationship. He still offers a personal relationship. The personal relationship of God and man continues, of course, because God does not abandon his people. 
God is faithful to his covenant. God wants to be involved in the lives of his people. And that doesn't change, Garden of Eden or not. But the closeness of the proximity of the relationship, the tangible, physical aspect of God and man together absolutely changes because there was a consequence to the commandment. Because God cannot dwell where sin is present. Where sin abounds, God and sin are opposites, like God and Satan are opposites. Sin is of Satan. Rebellion is of Satan. Darkness is of Satan. And God is of holiness, and God is of commandments, and God is of the law, and God is of light. So there had to be a consequence. And this hiding of themselves from the presence of the Lord God is almost a foreshadowing of what is to come. This hiding from the presence. Because God would then withdraw his presence and there would be a separation. Just like Adam and Eve felt in guilt and shame as they hid. Now, a lot of people with sin, and, and maybe you think back to your childhood more than at any other time. But as a child, you tend to respond that way. When you've done something wrong, you've done something that your parents asked you not to do, you hide because you feel guilt, because you feel shame. It's almost a natural human instinct. Doesn't mean it's good, means it's almost natural to do. And the all-knowing God calls to Adam in verse 9. And guess what? He's not verbally harsh with him, but you'll notice here that God asks questions. Again, God is in a personal relationship with Adam and with Eve, and he loves them and he cares about them, and he wants goodness for them. That's why he set forth the commandment. Well, I'm sure it's many reasons, but that's one reason. Because we flourish under God's authority. We flourish when we listen to God, when we look to God for guidance, when we look to God for teaching, when we look to God for instruction, when we look to God for definition. That's when we flourish. God says, I'm going to be the source of life for you. Directly, he was for Adam and Eve. And I believe he's still the, directly involved with the creation of every human birth, every human being conceived in the womb. It's biological, and I believe God's involved. I believe it's both. That God enabled the biology of reproduction, of human reproduction, and that nothing happens outside, especially with the creation of humanity, God's specific hand involved. Now, there's a lot of mystery in that. And you may believe a little bit differently. But I believe the author and creator God, who makes man in his image and likeness, would not leave any part of that without his hand involved and his hands touch involved. 
So he's not verbally harsh with Adam, but instead he asks him, where are you? It's the tender love of God. He knows all things. He's omniscient. He created the universe. He created planets. He created the earth. He created our moon. He created the sun. He created the galaxies and all of the stars. He created water on the earth. He created land on the earth. He created animals on the earth. He created birds on the earth. He created the sea creatures. He created all of this to have a relationship with man. And he knows all things. He dwells outside of time, which means he knew all things. He knows at every single moment, and moment is inside of time. But you could say that God has the knowledge. Okay, that's a descriptor outside of time. God has the knowledge of time past, time future. You've also heard it said eternity past and eternity future. Now, eternity is outside of time. Past and future are inside of time, but you understand the chronology of what I'm describing. So God knew when they sinned. Doesn't say God was there. Doesn't say that God was present or God was around. But God knew the moment it happened. God knew in the past that it would happen. He knows all things and he knew the truth would come out in the conversation with Adam. But he doesn't make a direct statement to Adam. He doesn't accuse Adam. He's not harsh with Adam. He's loving with Adam. And he asks Adam a question. And Adam responds truthfully in verse 10. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God responds in verse 11. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? God knows also that they were, quote unquote, naked from the moment they were created. Both before sin and after sin, in that, again, they had biological human bodies. But God again asks him two questions. Who told you this new term? The word naked. The description naked. Who told you this? Where did you learn it? He's asking, who told you? And God asks, essentially, have you disobeyed my commandment? Now let's read the response of Adam and Eve. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree. And I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. As is often the case when confronted about sin, and mostly, again, I think about little kids with their parents. The answers that the man and the woman, that Adam and Eve gave, are both, you could say, logistically correct. 
But when it is that Adam and Eve are one created in the image and after the likeness of God, two are to have dominion over creation, and three, under God's command, specifically not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or they will die. There is an utterly and vastly different meaning, purpose, and consequence to all of this, rather than just answering logistically correct. It's like the kid who disobeys something their parent told them to do or not do. Their parent then finds out about it, asks their child what they did. The kid confesses honestly, and the parent still disciplines their child for being disobedient. Often the truthful child, quote-unquote truthful, will claim, but I told you the truth. But the fact is the child was still disobedient. The honest latter answer does not negate the former offense. And this disobedience with Adam and Eve at the tree in the garden truly could not have been worse. The sentence to each of them for their disobedience in this was death. So what do we see? Some of this is yet to come as we continue in chapter 3 next week, but we see death from the presence of God. Kind of talked about that a little bit. So proximity and also in intimacy with God in a way that they will not know in the same way outside of the garden. God walked among them in the garden. Therefore, they saw God in the garden. They saw, they saw God. The Bible says no one can see God and live, but this was before the fall. This was before there was sin. This was before there was evil. This is before man started chasing after evil or embracing evil instead of God. So there was a holiness. There was a set-apartedness in the garden. There was a be holy as I am holy with God. There was a union with God. There was a communion with God physically, tangibly, in the same place, in the same location with God. This is God's desire for mankind. This is his desire in the relationship. God desires to have this close and intimate relationship with mankind, with his children. And this word intimacy just means super, super, super close. Not talking about intimacy, how necessarily it's used in our culture, which is normally marital intimacy. I'm using intimacy in the holy aspect of the word, in the holy communion with God. And that just means, folks, a very close, wonderful relationship with God. This is why we were created. This is why God sent us his law. This is why God gave us his scripture. This is why God sent Jesus on a rescue mission to reconcile us to God the Father. 
And this is his desire for all of us. So the first aspect is death from the presence of God. We also have death from the garden. This is a physical consequence. That the Garden of Eden was actually something kind of like the promised land, if you will. That this was an area that God specifically created to be with his people. That it was a land not specifically unlike a land flowing with milk and honey is how the promised land was always described to those who were exited from slavery in Egypt through the exodus that Moses called them and led them out. That God was leading his people with a pillar of a cloud by day and fire by night through the desert. That he was leading them into Canaan. That he was going to deliver them Canaan. And that all the nations that occupied then who were opposed to God and opposed to God's law would be routed by God. That he would enable them to have great victories over the people and to go into a land that they did not build not by their own power, but by God's power, and to have great flourishing, and to have land that produced vegetation in abundance. That was the promised land, and that's what we know of the Garden of Eden, trees of fruit in abundance, every green plant for food. This is Genesis 1 and 2. But they would be exiled from the garden at the end of Genesis chapter 3, and we'll get to that. Also, in this, God gave abundant provision. There was abundant provision in the garden. God's charge to Adam was to work it and keep it. There was an ownership to it. There was a beautiful shared ownership, if you will, in that way, because God dwelt there with them. And the having dominion, God was sharing the responsibilities of the Garden of Eden in God's abundance, and God gave Adam the charge to work it and to keep it. We also have a limitation or a separation from certain goodness aspects. There's a lot here, but I'll just say there, was a, there is to be a change in the relationship with God in the exiled, in the fact that God will not walk among them anymore. And we'll get to that. But the way that their thinking has already changed. So it affects their thoughts. Sin affects your thoughts from what it was before with God. Because they did not know they were quote-unquote naked. God says, who told you you were naked? This is a new term. This is a new descriptor. Because before it was just normal. But after sin, now there's guilt and now there's shame and now there's a new descriptor. And there are certain other tensions in relationships to come. And the first tension in relationship is Adam and Eve with God. There's also going to be physical decline now, aging hardship. And God says that the consequence is death, and there's death in all of these ways and more that affect the mind, that affect emotions, that affect relationships, 
and eventually will cause physical death on the earth. And until they sinned, that wasn't going to happen because death is a result of sin. I mentioned briefly last week about love and hate. That God wants us to love. Everybody knows God wants us to love and God does want us to love and God wants us to love him more than we are loving him. And you might think, but I love him more now than I did before. And that's good and you should and I do also. But if we're struggling with sin, if we're distracted to sin, if we're lazy in our Christian life, if we're lazy in our pursuit of God and his mission in Matthew 28, with the great commission to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is Matthew 28. This is God's command. To go therefore and make disciples. How easy is it to make disciples? It's not easy. It takes a lot of time to teach them everything I've commanded you. How much has God taught us? How much has God commanded us? There was this one commandment in Genesis 1. And apparently it wasn't easy to not only teach from Adam to Eve and to hold, but it wasn't easy to follow. The challenge before us is great. Now, for followers of Jesus Christ, we have the Holy Spirit indwelt. But the mission before us is great. The responsibility is great. And there's a lot to do. We are to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And it takes a long time to teach the word of God and to teach God's law and to teach God's command and to teach what Jesus has done. Thank God it's relatively simple to surrender your life to Christ and to ask Christ to come in and to change you so that you can be more like Christ and less like who we were before Christ. But the sanctification work of the Holy Spirit to make you that way over the rest of your life is a daily process. And there is more to learn about God. And there is more to learn about God's law. And there is more to learn about how to love God more and how to love the things of this world less. Or really the word is hate. And I'm not saying that we are to hate anyone else in this world because I believe that God's word says we're not to hate anyone else who is made in the image and the likeness of God. Now, certain people, or maybe a lot of people, may do things, do things, actions, say words that are against who God is, our God is, or against God's word. Those things we should hate, but not the people. Because the people, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, are made in the image and the likeness of God. Therefore, if there is someone who says something that you don't agree with, if there's specifically something that they say that is against God or against God's word, pray for them. Pray for them. Don't hate them 
pray that while it's still called today, that there's still time while they're still on the earth to repent, to trust in Christ, to have a new life changed by God, because so were we until we received Christ. We were opposed to the things of God. But God in his rich mercy reaches down and he saves people every single second on this earth. And while people are still alive, they're still within the grasp of God's love and the possibility of being saved. So pray that people would repent and trust in God. But we need to hate the evil one because he's absolutely and utterly opposed to God. And the evil one is present in chapter 3, and the evil one seeks to, what do we say in John 10? Steal, kill, and destroy. He's a deceiver. That's his name. Satan, deceiver. He wants to distract and commit to laziness those who follow Christ. He knows he can't have our soul because when Christ has saved you, God says, I don't lose anyone out of my hand. So you cannot lose your salvation, but Satan may be able to achieve certain strongholds if he can commit you or get you committed to either the things of this world to spend your time, that your priorities would be the things of this world, and by that I mean sin instead of God, or laziness, just distraction. When God says, make me more important than anything else in your life. And I have a commission for you. You are to be a disciple of mine. God says, be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Learn from him, study the scriptures, pray. Be changed daily, more and more and more and more. There's much to do to be changed into the likeness of Christ. Christian, do you struggle with sin? Do you struggle with sin? Okay, you've got work to do. If you answered yes to that, you've got work to do because the Holy Spirit, because God wants to sanctify you through the work of the Holy Spirit to be more like Christ. God says, be holy because I am holy. So be holy in all you do. If you're not there yet, you've got a lot of work to do. And if you think that you might be there yet or very close, then you still have a lot of work to do. Because an abiding relationship with God takes a lot of time. It takes all of your time. And in eternity, it will take all of your eternity. Because guess what? It's no less work when you're fully obeying God. But it doesn't feel like work because this is God's design for all of us. It becomes a joy. There's a few other passages I want to read in closing. And the first is from Deuteronomy 28. As we talk about love and hate, and what to love and what to hate, through the hand of Moses to the people of Israel, as they're about to enter the promised land, says Matthew, uh, excuse me, Deuteronomy 28, verse 1, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God 
will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Again, he's talking specifically to Israel, but this is God's word, and it has a lot for all of us to learn. Verse 2, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. A blessing to overtake you. How about that? If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be when blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. That means they wouldn't challenge them in battle. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your livestock, and in the fruit of your ground, within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. And you shall only go up and not down if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods, to serve them. These are promises that God made to the people of Israel as they were about to enter the promised land. But there's a lot in that for us today. And one more passage from John Chapter 8, starting in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, Jews who trusted Christ, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. In other words, if you obey my commandments, if you are constantly abiding, spending time in God's word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the capital S, son, sets you free, you will be free indeed. He's talking about himself. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, 
yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Some of them, folks, opposed him so much that they were trying to kill Jesus. Verse 38, I speak of what I have seen with my father, Jesus says, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Jesus affirms, folks. The words of God, because Jesus is the word of God. And Satan stands adamantly opposed to God, to Jesus, to God's word. And the only time that he even mentions God's word is if he's bending it, contorting it, twisting it, misquoting it, conniving it, destroying it. Satan, he says, is the father of lies. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. This is who Satan is. This is what Satan's about. When we lie, we are being of Satan. We are being like Satan. When we pursue deception, we're being of Satan. We're being like Satan. When we distrust God, we're being of Satan. We're being like Satan. And God has a completely different plan for all of us than that. God's plan for all of us is to be in a close, abiding relationship with him. God is holy and we will flourish under his holiness. We will flourish under his wing when we follow him in his authority under his leadership. We will flourish. His law is good for you. His law is good for me. His law is good for all of us. But there is a great cost in that. You have to surrender. You have to submit your life and your desires to God's. And then the storehouses are going to open up. God is faithful to his promise. God is faithful to his covenant. And that very likely may not be material blessing in your life here on earth. But I tell you what, God has something far, far greater in store. And that is himself. 
God's desire is to be in a close, abiding, walking every single moment together relationship with you. And through the Holy Spirit now in the New Testament, we have this radically close relationship with God. Though we are not walking geographically in the same place with him yet, but folks, we will. In the kingdom of heaven, we will. We will be with God, and that is his desire, is for you and I to be with him. May we forsake all other desires and temptations to know God and to prioritize him in the place that he deserves. Let's pray. Loving, loving God. May our love for you increase. As you have shown us love, may we respond in love. May we respond in worship. May we respond by forsaking all other gods, which was a big problem in the Old Testament. And today, perhaps it's not other gods, it's other idols, which is also one of your commandments. That we would not love other things, other created things, or chase after other things, which have at their root pride, which have at their root opposition to you. May we hold your word high in our life. May we champion it and champion you, that you are our champion, that you are our creator, that you are our God, that you are our savior. that you are our sustainer and that you would be our love more than anything else, more than anyone else. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Join me next time as we continue in Genesis chapter 3.